Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and unfortunately, Joshua is busy with his COVID response duties and unable to join me for recording today. But never fear, as he makes an appearance in most of this episode entitled Effective Exercises and Crisis Comms, The Demcon Debrief Part 2. In this episode, we'll be chatting with DEMCON speakers Anton Holland and Richard Moreau about how best to implement an effective exercise program and avoid the trap of conducting exercises for the sake of having an exercise. At the same time, we'll be chatting about some key principles of crisis communication, as well as highlighting some common pitfalls to avoid. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Well, welcome to part two of the DEMCON debrief that is the Ontario Disaster and Emergency Management Conference that Josh and I were fortunate enough to attend in 2020 and have some very important conversations with some of the speakers. And I'm very happy to be able to bring you the highlights of some of those conversations with both established and emerging leaders in the field of disaster management. And for today's feature, we were able to connect with Anton Holland, who is the president and CEO of Neva Inc., and Richard Moreau who is the Director of Emergency Management Solutions with the Callian Group as they discuss exercise design and crisis comms. We're just discussing that idea of personalizing risk a little bit more and reaching the the audience and and sometimes we forget what it's like to be a member of the public listening to these alerts instead of knowing the background. Yeah I mean um, you know we we, we we tend to forget when when we're immersed in something um, that, you know, cer- certain things uh, uh, feel obvious to us because we have all of the, the surrounding information. But when someone's coming into something cold, um, uh, you know, it, the, the, the whole situation is completely different. When we started uh, hearing rumblings about the fact that we were, we were in a pandemic, all sorts of things started coming up. You know, from from you know the, the the type of virus that we're dealing with to you know how what's the best way to keep a virus at bay and all those sorts of things and um, you know I think a lot of people were surprised that you know in general people didn't know that possibly just washing your hands was it was a good way to kill a virus. We've made assumptions and the information we've put out are based on those assumptions and it ends up being confusing. And then there right then that backtracking appears uh, to people as. Uh, either incompetence or, um, you know, uh, that people can't be trusted. Um, yeah. And that's unfortunate, right? Because uh, it's, it's, it's neither of those things. It's, uh, you know, you're trying to rectify a situation, but uh, you went around, you know, if you, you go about it the, the wrong way at first, then, uh, you know, you, you end up with a problem. Yeah, it shows that being factual, you know, isn't, isn't, it's, you know, necessary, but not sufficient. And, uh, you know, the, to your point, I, I think there's, been studies looking at uh, like in focus groups, people's perception of flip flopping and uh, uh, your credibility goes down. And even, and you're, you're trying to describe earlier in your talk about this notion of science. And, you know, I, I, you know, come from a research background and certainly it's an evolving thing and scientists love to debate and, and there's nuance and, you know, the closing statement of every paper ever is more research is needed and uh, assigning causality and stuff is, is almost impossible, but communicating that to a, to a public, it just seems like, well, the experts don't know what they're talking about and nobody ever knows. And, and, you know, there's, you get this kind of false dichotomy sometimes about where there's uh, you know, a disagreement. And uh, I think that's a really hard thing to, to transition. Um, the mask 
um, issue and, and how to get the rollout of uh, public masking, uh, I think was such a great case study for that. And early on, and I, I totally empathize with public health officials, the, the best science available was that simple face masks and certainly non-medical face masks um, were, would be ineffective. And then all of a sudden we're asking everybody to not only wear them, but you know, in some places it's mandatory and there's you know, laws saying you need to wear a mask. That can be a difficult uh, um, thing to, to kind of pivot and maintain credibility. Right, I think, and, 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 you know, because we were looking for some kind of silver bullet, and, you know, well, if I put a mask on, that will stop everything, right? Well, no, it doesn't, right? It just, it limits or reduces the chances that something will spread, um, and we lost an opportunity to talk about it in those terms. Um, yeah, when, when, when scientists talk about something, they, they use a completely different a uh, set of terms than, than the average person does, right? Think about the word theory. What it means to a scientist is that, you know, you've, you've, you're putting something out there that you're testing and you're constantly testing that theory, right? Um, and then as, you know, new evidence uh, is, is gathered, you change or you tweak that theory somehow. But to the average person, a the theory is just your opinion. It's just some idea you came up with. Yeah. Why should I? You know? Everybody's got one, yeah. <laughs> right, so we have to be careful about, about the terminology we use and the way we use it, right? Yeah. The other concept that uh, really, uh, you know, seems powerful to me is this notion of dread risk and how that uh, you're using the example uh, for, you know, nuclear safety. And that's something that if you're looking at the numbers, I, I my understanding is for that critical infrastructure, you know, the risk is actually quite low, uh, you know, yeah. in terms of a, a release or, or a major incident, you know, it's such a highly regulated uh, um, uh, organization and high, high reliability organization. But the dread risk of the public when you talk about radiation or, or you know, a risk like that is massive. And then it can, it can kind of uh, uh, make the communication disproportionate sometimes when even, even trivial or, or small things. And we saw the example with uh, the uh, messaging that went out, I think, last summer, about a year or so ago, where there was some confusion about public alerting. And, uh, you know, people really, um, you know, that was a huge, a huge event. The dread risk was, was evident. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, you know, certainly, um, you know, something something like nuclear. I mean, there's just uh, the, the the issues there just are so wide ranging, right? Because um, you know, we can use nuclear energy for uh, for power. Uh, it's also used as a weapon, and um, you know, right there, you're starting, you know, from from that point of view. And then we have historical things that have occurred, right? Um, the you know, the one that's most top of mind is always Chernobyl, right? But, you know, that's the result of multiple layers of management failure, right? And, right. and, and a design flaw, which isn't the case uh, with the things that we, we, we use in Canada. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're finding that kind of thing. And then, um, and then, you know, some of the more, some of the more recent things are just uh, accidents or issues that, we're not really related to the to, to the uh, the radiation itself, but you know the radiation part is the secondary effect. Of course, it's the bigger effect, but um, you know it's something that that results. I'm thinking of Fukushima and uh, right. you know putting pumps on the ground rather than on the on the building, um, yeah, that kind of thing. We always seem to be you know uh, catching up rather than getting ahead of it. So I have a question. That I, I'm wondering if this is maybe challenging some of the traditional risk communication teaching, but you know, ten years ago when I maybe first did uh, some workshops on risk communication, there was this move to have, you know, pre-canned uh, statements and, and, you know, a, a grand risk communication strategy. And 
this was back in the day when press releases were, were you know, still a, a thing before social media and stuff. Do you think the the way in which risk communicators prepare now is is changed? Like, is there any role for having kind of pre-canned uh, communications uh, ready to go, or is it just too quick and too dynamic? And we just need to be more adaptable to kind of communicate on the fly and, and use those principles that you were talking about instead of actual messages? Uh, well, I think it's both. I, I think having some things prepared um, gives you the opportunity to uh, react quickly to things. Um, but you have to be very careful about that because you have to make sure that the, the thing you've prepared is actually related to the thing that's happening. So that's where you have to uh, perhaps break them down into smaller pieces more so that as you are learning about what's happening, you can then release those pieces and then they start fitting together as part of a larger uh, puzzle picture. But certainly uh, um, if you're in a particular industry where, where some things can happen, I, I think it behooves you to think of all of the possible scenarios that can happen. Um, and then what will all, you know, have some information about all of those types of things uh, ready to go. Um, because if you if you try to do it on the fly, I mean, you're losing time. And while you're losing time, you're creating a vacuum and it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and perhaps 20 years ago, that wasn't as big a problem as it is now. Um, you know, uh, now with, uh, with, with social media, I mean, you know, it, minutes can be can you know, can, can quickly be filled with all sorts of garbage information and once it's out there it's hard to get rid of yeah as we saw with one of our other speakers uh, yesterday twitter moves faster than earthquakes <laughs> we can see <laughs> map it out looks like we have someone else who joined us here uh, i think maybe one of our uh one of our I believe it's richard Moreau who just uh joined us on the line richard hello hi how you doing good hi, thank you you just uh, had a bit of a talk on um, building uh, organizational resilience through the exercise design program. Um, really interesting topic. And I think it goes well with the theme of the, the conference, which is being able to show the value of your organization and really integrate it and, and track the learnings and the impacts and the actual value add within the organizational structure. It's an underestimated tool to improve the resilience, and it's often paid lip service to in most organizations, unfortunately, and, and most of the decisions based around investment in exercise and training tend to be based on uh, opportunity dollars and cents, uh, a little bit like buying insurance, right? How much insurance do I need? Uh, or, uh, you know, buying just good enough so I'm okay. Um, and, and that's what tends to happen in the, uh, in the exercise uh, field. Uh, we see a lot of organizations that, you know, up to three months to the end of the fiscal year, uh, we got $5,000. What can we do for that? Um, and, and they, but they never see that, that investment over time. Uh, they don't see a return on their investment over time because there's no progression and it's not tied uh, to a program approach to it uh, like they would do with other uh, functions in their organizations. You know, it's interesting. We've got uh, some crisis communication and risk communication uh, and the exercise design. And it just struck me, I, I really haven't done that many exercises where risk communication and alert crafting and uh, real-time Twitter management was part of, of the exercise. Is that something that's missing or could be improved, do you think? I think it's something that is required and it's uh, um, it's being paid lip service to. But I, I know we have done exercises focused on on communications, our, um, our, our own internal tool for exercise design and conduct as a, uh, a social 
media simulation app that allows bi-directional uh, communications live during the exercise to develop your uh, develop your messaging, push them uh, real time, and get reactions real time. We conducted a very successful two-day exercise for the communications uh, team that was supported the G7 summit in uh, Charlevoix in 2017, and that involved people from the municipal level all the way up to PCO, and it was really a great opportunity for them to work together uh, in crafting messages, understanding everybody's roles and responsibility. And, and I think it needs to be built into uh, everybody's exercise nowadays because we take it for granted, but we don't properly leverage it both as a source of information, but also as a way to, to, uh, to disseminate your messages. I think that's one of the hardest things to do well in an exercise. When you look at the traditional model of having like a sim cell that would provide injects into a uh, tabletop scenario, for example, I mean, how do you, how do you simulate thousands of tweets and, and a Twitter and conflicting tweets and all that sort of stuff? So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to find out how to do that better because it's uh, yeah. hard to do. What we typically do here is what we do is we pre-build a database of, all kinds of Twitter injects or Facebook type injects in our in our uh, in our in our tool, and we draw on that to generate the traffic by just customizing it to where the event is taking place. What are some of the organizations and players that are out there? Uh, we also uh, muddle the water with just background noise that would be happening on social media, and we created a whole series of bots that are managed by one or two people that will interact with uh, the uh, the target audience uh, during an exercise. You know, it's interesting. I, I used to work with the public safety unit and our big end of year exercise would uh, be using volunteers who set up a rally and were purposely very uh, aggressive and insulting and what have you. Um, it was a great way to, for them to let off steam. It was a great uh, exercise in general. I wonder if something like that could be incorporated into an exercise where you just get a whole bunch of very active social media people uh, in a closed circuit uh, social media forum just and just pick the apart the, uh, the releases and, and give that sort of adversarial network work approach to, to developing comms. We, uh, I mean, the, the exercise I referred to for the, the G, uh, G7 summit in uh, Charlevoix actually had a, a, an important piece in it, which was the ability to detect signs of state-sponsored or, or you know, uh, organized-sponsored uh, messaging to uh, deter or detract or counter the, uh, the messaging related to the event. So it was to train the different comms people to identify the signs, the warning signs that they were being specifically targeted uh, by a deliberate effort to undermine their message. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it can be done and it, uh, it is being done. Anton, how do people scale up in those situations? So if, you, if you're in this you know, Twitter storm or maybe you've got, you know, bots or, 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 you know, a, a huge active uh, population in, in whatever social media sphere you're in, and you're just a small crisis communications team, how do you, how do you scale up in time uh, so you just don't get drowned out in the noise? Yeah, uh, that, that's a big challenge. Uh, you know, um, you know, often uh, you are engaging other people in your organization 
who may not have a direct role to play in some of the other response uh, activities, and you just co-opt them into, uh, you know, give them some quick training and, and they co-opt them into, into uh, doing some of that work. It's an all hands on deck kind of thing uh, when all of that hits, hits the fan, that's for sure. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point there. It's important to be able to, to bring other people onto the, the comms team, uh, but there's definitely a difference between crisis communication and normal corporate uh, uh, or business communication. Yeah. How do you bridge that gap? And, and maybe for both of you, what sort of training or exercises could be used to, to do that? I've seen a few uh, epic fails of corporate communications trying to uh, dabble in crisis communications, and it was not well received. I well, I, I, I think I think everyone working in a in a corporate communications environment, well, there, where there is the potential for some kind of crisis of this of you know the the nature we're talking about to happen, there should I mean there should be at least some basic training on what they should be doing and what pitfalls to avoid um, and some some pretty basic level training can can help you at least recognize those things and of course um, none of those people even with the training uh, should be um, uh, given access to the to the to the, the button to press right I mean someone else needs to vet what goes out and that needs to be, you know, there's going to be a bottleneck, but that's necessary because you want to make sure that nothing gets past, uh, you know, the, the right people. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, what we see often, and, and this is all also true to other types of functions within an organization that needs to be able to scale up. But in a case like crisis communications, you want to free up your experts to focus on message and have people trained to do the sifting to look for specific things and bring that up to their attention. So you don't want to make all of them experts, but you want to train them on a very narrow front to do uh, to handle the volume and be able to find those nuggets and give them to the experts so they know what to do with them. Because if if you maintain your experts stuck in the weeds, then they're going to lose uh, they're going to lose sight of what's important very quickly. And my, uh, you know, for, for full disclosure, my, my, my media background is, was, has been on the other side, uh, we're, uh, working as a journalist with uh, CBC and, and Global, but, uh, you know, been involved in a lot of uh, kind of crisis comms uh, courses. And the, the thing that always strucks me is this, this concept of like dealing with the media and it, you know, almost like a negative, <laughs> negative connotation. Um, but I, th I think one of the things that's often misunderstood is what the media is looking for. And uh, sometimes crisis communicators, you know, they want to give the facts and, and kind of stick to the facts. But the media uh, and, and journalists in general are, are always looking for a story. And if you can help facilitate that in, in terms of uh, not just giving talking heads, so to speak, in terms of a, you know, a, a official spokesperson, like actually uh, facilitate um, access in, in, in a something that's of service to organization um, to, to people involved who can get like a human perspective to, to an issue or to a story. I think that's useful because otherwise, uh, as you know, it's a vacuum and the media will find a way uh, somehow. And it's better to be on the facilitating side uh, versus, uh, you know, maybe being surprised by a story you wouldn't expect. Well, I guess you don't want people, uh, you know, speculating on things when they're dealing with the media, right? Um, trying to create that story on the fly. I think those things have to be well considered. Um, so, you know, at different stages, the story will change. And at early on, the story is going to be, um, we don't know everything yet. This is what we're doing to figure this out. Um, you know, we'll give you more things as we go. 
you know, so far early on, it looks like this is what's happening, but that could change once we get new information. Be very clear about that. And then as things go and you start internally within your organization, recognizing where the stories would be, well then, you know, prepare for that. Yeah. And that acknowledgement piece, I think, is so huge. And that's where I think we've seen a big shift uh, almost immediately, you know, leading communicators, there'll be some sort of social media tweet or something that an incident has occurred or we're investigating this or whatever that, that an early acknowledgement, even when you don't have all the facts, I think is, is hugely important and establishes your credibility early on. Yeah. You know, I, I, I used to belong to an organization where I, I still kind of do on a part-time basis that was notorious for seeing the the, the media as the, as the enemy, enemy. Uh, yeah. and would go out of its way, not to engage with them until they paid dearly uh, for, for not doing so and not realizing the importance of engaging early. And as Anton was saying, uh, just acknowledging that there's something going on, that you're looking into it, that you don't have all the information right now is, is part of initiating that crisis communication. Yeah. It, it does buy you time to get your facts straight, uh, but not saying anything is not an option. Uh, or pretending nothing is going on doesn't work either in today's environment. So you have to train your management team to be able to do that. Uh, and, and as you pointed out, just putting a, a spokesperson out there, everybody smells right through that. Uh, they want to see uh, somebody that represents the organization, whether you know it's a foot soldier or it's a, a general. They don't yeah. want to see a public affairs person. Uh, they want to see the people that are involved in, 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 in the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, Anton, I think it was in your talk, you mentioned that if you're not willing to tell the story or create the narrative, someone else is going to do it for you. And then you're going to have to deal with that. Uh, you also mentioned there are a few pitfalls to avoid. I wanted to, to capture that. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. Um, well, one is uh, in a situation where that everything is negative, um, trying to lighten the mood. Um, you know, people will try to crack an innocent joke and it's 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 the wrong thing to do right because um while you know your intent is 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 benign you 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 want to just people some breathing space i mean there are people who are seriously affected by something and 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 none of that is funny right so um you you definitely want to avoid that uh the other is uh when you're trying to explain something and you're using an analogies uh, make sure you use the right ones, right? Um, so, <laughs> you know, if we are talking about something like risks, so for example, if, um, you know, there's cleaning staff working in a hospital and there's a new cleaning chemical that they're using um, is very effective, but, you know, in 20% of uh, the people who use it, they end up with some form of cancer, right? Um, and you're trying to downplay that by saying, well, you know, that's less than the, the, the cancer risk of a smoker, right? I mean, the, the two things are completely different. One is a voluntary risk and the other is an involuntary risk. Um, and uh, so you've got to be very careful about those types of analogies. And sometimes your use of analogies just make things less clear. They just don't make any sense or they're hard to understand. Uh, they're a bit of a, a stretch. Yeah, some of the best media training I've been submitted to uh, was really about about that, about being able to truthfully answer the, the questions, not go out of your lanes, avoid things like Anton was saying, uh, misplaced humor or poor poor examples. I mean, we see that all the time right now uh, when people are comparing, you know, the COVID-19 with, uh, with the flu or cancer, or they're completely different things with different dynamics. People are just trying to spin the numbers to fit their argument, and 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 most journalists see right through that. So you you've got to be very careful not to fall in those traps. 
Yeah, it's interesting now that most of the major uh, journalism programs in, in the country have dedicated courses on either covering disasters or, you know, crisis communications. And uh, I know at least my uh, program I graduated from, the actual there's training in incident command and ICS as part of uh, journalism school now. So yeah, and even and even the, you know, going further with the respective technical and scientific in, uh, information. Uh, you know, in a lot of areas, there are science media centers now, right? So providing tools for journalists to use so they can understand the science um, and have things that they can uh, draw upon when they're writing their stories so that everything's actually correct from their end. In terms of the, the technicalities and organization around managing information, one of the concepts that's been out there for a while is the Joint Information Center. It's not a new concept, but I don't know how well practiced it is in, in Canada, especially between organizations. There might be you know, a joint information system just for the EOC and EOC partners, but it doesn't really capture everything. Just wondering, um, both from an exercise and operational perspective, what successes or uh, tools have you seen used in, in JICs that seem to get the message out and share information a little bit better? My, my personal experience, having, having gone through that in... Uh in the early 2000s where the military was looking at creating these information fusion centers and also for having done after action reviews of significant uh, weather related events, uh, both locally here in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada is right now, unfortunately, most of our structures are focused to handle the now. So that leaves very little capacity to take a step back and be able to assess what else is happening in the environment that could affect your partners, but also affect your downstream response and, and, and actions. And uh, one of the clients that we work with uh, faced a, uh, a significant weather event where uh, tornadoes touched down in one part of the community uh, and everybody focused on that. It was all hands on deck. Everybody started to look at the space through a straw. Uh, and they lost sight of everything that was going on outside of it. And they missed the fact that a second set of tornadoes had hit elsewhere in, uh, in, in, in their jurisdiction. And it took them a while to realize it and adjust because nobody kept the eye on, 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 the, uh, on the rest of the environment. And, and you need to have very tight information requirement parameters that are well identified because you're going to get swamped very quickly. Um, and I, I went through that challenge. I mean, uh, one of my, where I got thrown into the, the, the fire pit was uh, as the officer in charge of the National Defense Command Center in Ottawa uh, following 9-11. Uh, we were handling thousands and thousands of pieces of information on a daily basis to produce a 10-minute briefing every day. Uh, where do you start? Where do you focus on? Um, where do you get your trusted sources of information? So those those joint information centers uh, should really be created to support a multi-agency clearinghouse to generate the right level of situational awareness to allow the lower levels of command or lower levels of response to focus on what's relevant for their intervention in the field uh, without losing the bubble. And that's a big challenge for a lot of organizations. The states have invested all kinds of money after 9-11 for these intelligence fusion centers that were focused on counterterrorism, but now they're starting to uh, involve more and more all hazard. So those structures do exist, but they're very few and far between in Canada. 
you know, I, I love that you turned it back to uh, information management because I, I fell into the trap of, uh, of thinking that joint information centers are about public communication. And we sometimes think about risk communication as the same thing as public communication, but uh, all of the same principles need to apply even when you're doing internal communications and situation reports or uh, transferring information to the, the decision makers. And that is a skill in and of itself to, to analyze, interpret, display all of the right information for the right audience. And we often uh, don't focus on presenting it internally to, to the decision makers and influencing their um, decisions. Is that part of, in your mind, is that part of risk communication and, and uh, crisis communication? Um, well, certainly, uh, you know, we, we've been hearing about, um, you know, issues with the Public Health Agency of Canada um, and the government's um, GFIN, the, the early warning system that we had in place for things like pandemics. Um, and um, with, without that group, um, there's no one there to, to translate the, the esoteric information about things that are brewing out there into messaging that actual decision makers will understand so that they will, uh, you know, pick up on the gravity of a, a developing situation, even if they aren't scientists or specialists, right? Um, so packaging that information in a way that policy and decision makers and so on can understand is essential. Um, it is definitely part of risk communication. Um, it's more, you know, obviously a more of an internal thing, but um, uh, it's definitely part of the, the whole ecosystem there and it's, and, and it's essential. Sure. I'm not sure if uh, you guys were able to, to sit in for Kelly's um, keynote uh, uh, talk yesterday, Kelly McKinney um, from NYU, but uh, I just thought it was pure genius, his, his um, strategy of actually creating a false um, news uh, segment, forecasting the, that the worst had happened to his institution and embedding that in a tabletop as a way of, you know, increasing you know, that, that fourth quadrant you were talking about, Anton, about what do you do if people are minimizing the risk and you actually need to yeah. increase the, the level of concern. And uh, that's how he did it. He had an actual, you know, actor and standing in front of his own hospital saying the hospital has been overrun and, you know, and, like, and that's the actual news clip that, you know, sure enough was, was played for real in uh, the, the weeks to follow. To me, that just seemed like planning and, and, and communication genius. A war of the world scenario there. <laughs> Maybe I just didn't quite hear a little a little bit about your guys' background. Uh, Anton, how did you get into uh, risk communications? Yeah, well, I it was, you know, started off as a, with a career in, in, in uh, ecological research um, and um, found over time that uh, there really wasn't uh, a need for uh, science communication, right? So um, by profession, I'm a science communicator. Um, but science and risk communication are kind of things that go hand in hand. Um, and uh, so as our, you know, company was developing its science communication practice, we were recognizing that a lot of our clients were really needing help in the area of risk communication. Um, you know, we were uh, we worked very closely with the Transportation Safety Board of Canada um, in on the uh, crash investigation report for the Swiss Air 111 crash back in the uh, late 90s and uh, early 2000s. You know, that uh, that was a very eye opening project for all of us in the company and really brought home to us just the importance of being able to get that kind of information into the right hands as quickly as possible, because at the end of the day, lives are at stake. So that's how uh, I got into this. And oh, uh, the risk communication side of things is really fascinating in terms of 
what's going on cognitively with people that are, often is not in, uh, intuitive. Um, so that's a, you know, a fascinating part of it as well, how you counter those things. Uh, Richard, how about yourself? Um, my involvement in emergency management came as a bit of a progression of what I mentioned earlier, what I was uh, still in the active uh, forces uh, in charge of the National Defense Command Center in Ottawa. Uh, my uh, baptism of fire was the day of 9-11. I was six weeks after I took over uh, and then spent the next three years uh, managing uh, Canada's road to war, uh, the fires in BC, forest fires in BC, the power outage of Eastern Canada. So getting involved in that multi-agency, highly complex uh, event management and, uh, and planning and response really interested me. So when I made my transition from uniform life to the, the private sector, uh, I decided to uh, begin involved in the, the, continuing that involvement in emergency management. Um, I did step back and forth between the public and private sector. I did a short sting over to, uh, to uh, Public Safety Canada, but my personal passion has always been about exercise preparedness, but also emergency operation centers, uh, uh, training and operations. I, and and kind of speaking to the disaster science piece, it's interesting looking at some of the research about uh, exercises and and, and uh, to our point earlier about causality. It's it's hard on, for us on paper sometimes to justify to actually prove uh, that exercises result in more preparedness. And I think there's some things that exercises do really really well. And we're talking about you know the the social media simulation and crisis communications. But then also we it's easy to fall into this disaster theater mode where we we make you know these full scale exercises which look really fancy and you've got you know moulage and all this uh, makeup and, and emergency vehicles and stuff. But you have to wonder are they actually contributing to our overall preparedness or is it just uh, you know a theater exercise? Yeah, you're right. And and again, when I grew up through the military, we used to go on exercise for eight weeks in the spring. So the soldiers that are in the back of the vehicle were doing exactly the same thing at week eight that they were doing at week one. Uh, there was no additional value for them um, because all we did is we added layers of complexity. Uh, so we are exercised at the lower levels, but fundamentally for the first responders, if you're a firefighter responding to a fire, you know, it's your basic drills and protocols are the same. What changes is as the scenario becomes more complex, it's all the coordination and command and control around it. So some of those full-scale exercise that we call where you've got actors and they have their place, but they need to be designed in a way that you are going after some very specific training objective, not just for the sake of running an exercise, because the actual training value for your firefighters, your uh, first responders may be very limited uh, in doing that, and they would probably learn more by uh, doing a different types of experience, maybe leveraging things like simulation, where there's immediate feedback on their choices uh, as they manage a scene or they react to a situation. So you're, you're right, we tend to fall for that big theatrical, uh, all-encompassing exercise, but it's really designing your exercise around the training objective and what you're trying to get out of it. I think that probably has to arrive from a bit of a risk and vulnerability analysis of whatever organization you're in to find the weak spots that you want to train and, and organize. And it's it's interesting, you're sort of merging the the two ideas of training versus exercising. And I think 
that is the way of the world, you know, in a, a perfect setup, you do all the training first and then exercise is a bit of a, a test, but uh, that's never been my experience is there's a lot of uh, learning and, and training that goes on during um, the exercise and taking advantage of those little moments of opportunity seems to be the most important part if you're trying to sneak an exercise in. Um, and we've, I think we've seen this a little bit during during COVID is taking uh, those just-in-time moments to train people up or educate the public, perhaps. How do you best kind of capitalize on those just-in-time opportunities where you don't have the ability to organize a, a giant exercise and get all the stakeholders in, in the same room? We, we call that the real-time learning aspects of it. I mean, typically, uh, and I'm sure that's been your experience, a big event happens, and then everybody goes home, glad it's over. And then somebody wakes up and goes, oh, we need to do an after action review uh, of the event. So by the time they get a contract out, hire a company to come in and do it. If they don't do it internally, it's six, eight, nine, ten 10 months after the event. There's no learning to be had here. People have moved on. Uh, they got their beer goggles on. They've embellished their involvement in the story or their recollection of what happened. The learning needs to happen the moment you activate. And uh, I got to give kudos to the province of New Brunswick here because they uh, contacted us um, after at the back end of the first wave of COVID. They said, we need to get ready for the second wave. We want somebody to come in and look at how we've done some of the structures we put in place so we're better prepared for the next one. So they're still in full activation mode, but yet they leverage that learning opportunity to, to draw out what has worked well, what needs improvement so they're ready to phase the next the next stage and that cannot be underestimated that you need to to learn during an event and it needs to be built in the simple things as if you're a duty officer in an operation center is capturing your observations at the end of your shift and passing them on to the person that's replacing you and you do that at all levels the learning and the collection of observation needs to begin the moment you activate or you start an exercise not after the fact. Uh, thanks very much for the conversation, uh, gentlemen. It's been a great opportunity to kind of expand on your presentations today. And um, just as maybe a final close, uh, Anton uh, uh, and uh, Richard, if you have any uh, direction you'd like to send people looking for more information, uh, website or anything like that, uh, or if they're looking to get some more information about your uh, various topics. Uh, right. Well, you uh, you know you can contact me directly, or if you're you're looking to uh, just peruse some things, you can go to our website, which is www.niva.com. That's N-I-V-A.com. And for, for myself, uh, if you go to Callian, www.callian.com, uh, and also our responseready.ca, a video that gives you uh, some insight in terms of our uh, exercise planning and delivery tool. Uh, that's how you can get a hold of us. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Anton and Richard for sharing their time and expertise with us and to DemCon for helping to facilitate the conversation. If you're looking for a professional development opportunity, well, this year might be your year. There are a number of emergency management conferences coming up, and many of them are virtual, which makes them cheaper and more accessible. You should definitely check out the Emergency Management Stakeholder Summit coming up uh, March 23rd and 24th of 2021. This is a virtual event and you might even be able to catch Josh and I as we present on the pros and cons of incident command systems. 
Uh, and then you should absolutely, if you're in the healthcare industry, check out the Emergency Preparedness for the Healthcare Industry Conference coming up May 13th. And if you haven't registered yet, well, you can get $30 off registration simply by using the code EPIC when you register because we have managed to partner with them and we're very excited about that conference. Finally, at the end of the year, the Ontario DemCon is coming back and this will be a hybrid event in December and hopefully we'll be able to see you there and maybe even shake your hand. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode was brought to you in part by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping give Pod Power a shout out to Your Forest, and this is a podcast about the natural world. Hear stories about the environment, renewable resources, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. For more information, go to yourforestpodcast.com. That's yourforestpodcast.com. This episode is also brought to you by Career Essentials, which is a new podcast from techlifetoday.ca and Nate. Career Essentials offers real-world advice and insight into different careers and career paths. Discover perspectives, tools, and tips essential to your career growth and success. Co-host Brian Allery shares more about what to expect from this podcast. I fought fires in Australia in 2009, and I just happened to be there when there's an eight-year drought going on, and there's record-breaking temperatures, and a few thousand fires started in one day. In the town that I was in, 34 people died, so that was a pretty scary time. I love Anthony Bourdain. I read Kitchen Confidential, it got me into cooking. I thought, this is rock and roll, this is cool. Anthony Bourdain was a failed chef, and the things he did and romanticized led him to ruin. People get lost in that message. If I, a young business owner who owns a cafe in a small town, can make time for mental health in my business and to help educate our guests and our peers, then what's stopping larger groups of restaurants and better chefs than me from doing it in theirs? Introducing Career Essentials, a new podcast from Tech Life Today and Nate. Career Essentials offers real-world advice and insight into different careers and career paths. We feature the stories and experiences of Nate alumni with lessons for everyone. Whether you're just starting out or further along your career journey, each episode will give you perspectives, tools, and tips that are essential to growth and success. And who knows, we might even inspire you to pursue a completely new career path for professional and personal satisfaction. Career Essentials is created and hosted by the team at techlifetoday.ca, Nate's online magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.